this is my China dream. It is going to be hard in the middle of anti-corruption, hitting the fraud. As we clean our house up, we also go in abroad. My daughter went to Harvard where she studied the board. We built some islands offshore. We know they seem a bit far, but so is our ideas, extending almost to Mars. It all makes sense if you see it from my perspective. Xi Jinping style, my dream is picture perfect, so smile. Sit back and relax, America, because it'll take me a while. Welcome to On Uninformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Each week, On Uninformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel so dumb around your smart friends. This week we're talking about China, and our expert is a rapper, and he's an economist. We're talking with Andrew Doherty. That's his name when he's a macroeconomist in China. But he's better known by thousands of fans around the world as Big Daddy Doe. I first met Big Daddy Doe on his tour for his new album release. The album is called The Red Print, Rhyme and Reason in the Riddle Kingdom. It's a rap, funk, hip-hop parody album. And all the songs put some of the complexities of Chinese politics into rap form. You'll hear stuff like this. It's the one and only Xi Jinping. And this. First things first, I'm a realist. I'm a realist. I recognize that not everyone will feel Let this. Let them feel this. And I'm still in the China business, but I'm feeling down because they're taking all of us prisoners. Right. We just want a fair shake legally. Could huh? the regulators add some transparency? Yeah. Couple of shoes, couple of Joes, couple of leaves across the table. I got no lawyers signing docs in Chinese. in Chinese. You'll be hearing parodies like this throughout the podcast as Big Daddy Doe gives us some insight on what the U.S.-China relationship is all about. Big Daddy Doe, welcome to Un Uninformed. Thanks, Sean. Great to be with you, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for this. So, um, Big Daddy Doe is in. Uh, you're in Beijing right now. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So before we get into the Chinese politics and stuff like that, um, I just want to know how did you get into rapping or being an economist for Chinese issues? Like, and you can answer this in rap form if you'd like. <laughs> and I know that your Beijing state of mind. That's one of your Biggest hit songs. You kind of talked about that, right? That's right. Yeah. Now the first verse is,、uh, you know, yeah, I'm up at Beida. Now I'm down in Guomao. I started as a student, but I run the show now. So,、uh, you know, it kind of references that those early days as a student, first in '01, and then. I reference Beida, Beida, which is basically uh, uh, Peking University. It's the Chinese short form for Peking University,、oh, okay. which is one of the one of the、uh, top universities in China. And so my my master's degree, which I did in England at, at Cambridge University, had a, a joint、uh, cooperative program with Peking University, Beida. So I I reference that, and then this transition to you know 2009 when I moved back. Uh, many years later, as a as a professional to to work in the Central Business District, which is known as Guomao, Beijing. Got it. Okay, so now you are a macroeconomist. So I'm an, a macroeconomist. I'm, a, I'm sort of a, a jack of all trades in terms of macro analysis. So I look at political 
the political trends here and, and analyze those as well as some societal trends that I think might be important to to understanding, uh, you know, what's happening in China. And I, I do that for uh, for my company, which is an investment management company. So I'm trying to help explain China in a way that will help my my colleagues who are portfolio managers and analysts understand the changes that that might impact the companies they're considering investing in. Wow. Okay. So. Um, so on the, the, the website of your album, um, and that's uh, theredprintalbum.com, you have as part of your mission, you say, quote, the U.S.-China relationship is the world's most important geopolitical bilateral dynamic and will be for some time. So, so let's talk about the U.S.-China relationship. Why is it so important? Uh, so it's important for several reasons. The first is kind of the most obvious, I suppose, which is that China and the United States, or I should say it in reverse, probably United States and China respectively are the largest and second largest uh, economies in the world. And often country size these days is sort of referenced by size of economy. So and, and, and kind of, quote unquote, superpower uh, status is, is often driven by economic status. And we've seen that all, all through history. So mm-hmm. so you have the two the two largest world powers and whether you know, it's an argument now whether or not China's on the same level. I would I would suggest it's not uh, at this point, but right. it's certainly trending in that direction and has ambitions to be respected on par with the United States. Um, and so, you know, so just from this, the, the perspective of size, China is only going to continue to grow in size. The U.S. economy is uh, is still about. Uh, you know, 40, 50 percent larger than the than the Chinese economy, probably about 40 percent now. Okay. Um, and so there's still a meaningful delta there between the two in terms of size. And the U.S. military has obviously a much bigger and broader presence, uh, f- fewer total headcount in the military because the Chinese military is, is large in that sense. But sure. in terms of presence globally, the U.S. the U.S. military is is obviously um Far more active and, 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 and penetrated in terms of alliances, etc. So, but but you do see China just not just economically growing, but also geopolitically and militarily uh, growing their budgets, growing their presence. Certainly in Asia, but even even in other parts of the world, the Chinese have started to become under Xi Jinping, who's their uh, the current uh, leader of China, yeah. has been for the last five years. They're they're much more assertive, and uh, and so. That kind of gets to the second reason why the relationship is, is so important. There's a uh, there's a phrase called the Thucydides trap, and Thucydides was a Greek uh, historian philosopher who wrote during the time of sort of uh, uh, Athens and Sparta, these great city states. And when Sparta was on the rise, he had this uh, hypothesis that when you have an existing uh, dominant power and a rising power, that inevitably uh, that leads to to military conflict. That 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 the the existing power, a global power or, or or major power in a given region, is not going to be willing to cede that uh, that status without without a fight, effectively. And so, a lot of folks have talked about the Thucydides trap and how that's played out um, uh, through the through the centuries. And in certainly in the context of China and the United States, that's a relevant question. Uh, and and so you know, so from the standpoint of Global peace uh, and uh, uh, and you know and prosperity. The China-U.S. relationship will be the relationship uh, to watch for the next century. The the last thing I would say is that global standards and norms, whether it's international law, international finance, technology, 
these uh, standards, these rules, these laws are basically driven by, you know, the, the, the top stakeholders in, in the global economy or the global uh, order. And so China, which, you know, 20, 30 years ago was, was quite small in that regard from an economic or geopolitical influential standpoint, is now wanting a bigger say. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're in, across all of those different categories starting to disrupt a bit. And so, again, how the global, you know, the, the, the global order and, 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 uh, and legal system uh, and technology standards, et cetera, uh, are going to look in 20, 30 years will, to a great extent, depend on, on the U.S.-China relationship. Okay, yeah. So um, it, it wants to be a big team player in a lot of places. So today on Facebook, I, I asked people questions about the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so, uh, Kyle Pierce had a question that's been on my, on my mind for the last few months. And this is it. He says, what do the Chinese think about Trump being elected and what effects, if any, will come of it? So Trump and the Chinese, um, is an interesting and, and definitely evolving, uh, dynamic as, well, yeah. as, as it is, as it is to a great extent with, in the United States. I mean, I think to, Sure. Uh, to a large degree, everyone is trying to figure out um, uh, President Trump and his policies <laughs> and his, his stance and right. you know what what it's going to be in, in the next three months. Um, and so when 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 Trump first um, was elected, I think the Chinese were a surprised as was uh, as was most of the world, uh, and b I think they were quite concerned. You know, they they weren't a huge fan of Hillary in the sense that she they sort of saw her as uh, largely responsible for the U.S. pivot to Asia, which they really see as a, a containment strategy of the U.S. to try to contain China's rise. Um, so I think they saw her as tough and, and belligerent or difficult, but uh, they, I think they saw her as predictable. So and they love predictability because <laughs> predictability and stability are connected. And so, um, so I think they were they probably preferred Hillary in that sense. They thought, okay, she might be tough, but she'll be in this range of predictable outcomes that we're, we've generally operated within with, with U.S. Uh, administrations for the last 30 years. Yeah. When they got Trump, they they said, we have no idea what we're going to get from this guy. And I the think Trump wild especially card, yeah. <laughs> the Trump wild card. And, and he played that uh, a couple times after he was elected, but before he was actually the president, he you know, both in his rhetoric in terms of, you know, uh, threatening to label them currency manipulators. Probably the biggest issue is he yeah. took a phone call from the uh, Taiwanese president, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, no, that, that sort of recognize, formally would, would recognize uh, Taiwan, which the Chinese, the Chinese, of course, say is, is a province of China. And, uh, and no U.S. president or uh, member of the administration has met with or, or taken a congratulatory phone call uh, right. We've from been the Taiwanese. That. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That one China policy. Uh, and he wouldn't commit to enunciating the one China policy uh, or, you know, re re reaffirming that. So that threw China for a loop and they, they started to get quite concerned about what what they would, uh, you know, what they would be facing with Trump and how they deal with him. Then pretty quickly, after a month or so, um, they got Trump to agree to get on the phone with Xi Jinping to accept his congratulatory phone call. And the uh, the sort of quid pro quo to uh, to having that phone call with Xi was that Trump had to uh, affirm the one China, China policy. And he did that. And that since then, really, he's been very mild on China and his rhetoric. He hasn't tweeted all that much about them. 
you know, occasionally on an issue here or there. But he's been actually fairly constructive. And then, of course, very quickly uh, agreed to uh, what most are calling the Citrus Summit in Mar-a-Lago a few weeks back in early April and, and established a reasonable rapport with Xi Jinping and, and kind of showed himself to be quite flexible in terms of his positions. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, it's, it's an interesting and a very evolving dynamic. I think the Chinese, since that evolution, to, to kind of conclude the answer to your question, I think their view of Trump has come back around and said, actually, he's a guy who likes to make deals. We like to make deals. We actually feel very comfortable in our ability to to put something together that allows him to tweet his you know victories and reach and reestablishing the U.S.-China relationship on positive footing for the U.S. We can we can offer him a few things probably on on the trade side that will make him happy. We can probably do a few things with North Korea to help show that uh, that he's being tr- he's being tough and that we're cooperating. And then you know and then kind of status quo will. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, you know, win the day and we won't have to go too far one way or the other in the relationship, which is really what they would like. So they don't want any any kind of bumps in the road. And I think they saw the Trump, uh, the U.S.-China relationship and the Trump card as a wild card as, as one of the uh, one of the major risks. And I think they feel like that's been de-risked or taken off the table, which is a big win for Xi Jinping. It's kind of hard to understand China. And so if I were Trump, what do I need to know about Xi Jinping or about China, you know, to make make them happy with the U.S.-China relationship? What do they want? Yeah, so so it's that's a that's a good great question. Uh, it's I think it's one that Trump is trying to figure out. Uh, I think the uh, the question probably has two, the answer has two parts to it. One is what do the Chinese want, and two what what does Trump want to give? Or you know, so so how Trump approaches China is is both a function of of what uh, what the other side wants, but also what he's willing to give up in the process and. Um, the the Chinese would love nothing more than uh, I, I used the word status quo before. Would not love nothing more than a continuation of the status quo, effectively. I mean, they they like that uh, in the last. They like stability. Number one, they like the fact that uh, that you know the trade surplus is in their favor in the U.S.-China relation trade relationship in a major way, like to the tune of. You know, three to three hundred fifty to four hundred billion dollars a year. Yeah. That's one of the that's one of the big uh, sore points for the Trump administration. Because they so we'll got see the how power in that regard. Yeah, it's just you know, I mean, so GDP is a function of net exports, and so if you have a major trade deficit, uh, that suggests that, uh, that that that's going to be a drag on GDP because that your your net exports will be at least in the, in the context of that bilateral relationship will be negative but also it means that a lot of jobs are going to china and china is china is is, is selling those goods to the u.s it's great for the u.s consumer because we get super cheap goods yeah. it's not as good for u.s manufacturing because we, we lose jobs now there's a whole other argument there about whether we keep those jobs if you know even if china wasn't in the picture they might go somewhere else so it, right. it, that's all that's a structural economic question uh worthy of several podcasts but i i <laughs> sure. you know i think i i think that at least on the surface that what the trump administration would like to see is a reduction in the trade deficit 
uh, to a, a meaningful extent, at least something that's tweetable. Uh, and then they would like, they would like from a geopolitical standpoint to neutralize the North Korea, uh, uh, question and risk. And they see China as, as the probably rightly so, as the, as the only really key partner they can rely on, uh, to make progress in that regard without, uh, without military, uh, military force. Wow. Now, so I think, yeah. so I think, so anyway, it's just to, just to loop back. I sure. do, I do think that, I think the Chinese want very little change. They don't actually want a ton of change in the relationship with North Korea because, you know, you do too much to upset the apple cart there and you could end up with millions of North Korean refugees flooding over the Chinese border. They don't oh, okay. want that. They don't want a, uh, a, a, a unified Korean peninsula that is an ally of the United States because then you have a U.S. ally on your border. <laughs> so they, they, they want status quo in the Korea, uh, North Korea situation. The U.S. doesn't want status quo. And that's where they're going to have to, they're going to have to trade a bit. And, and Trump has recently kind of conflated trade and geopolitics by saying, you know, we'll give a better deal on trade to China if, uh, if, if they help us out with North Korea. If they don't help us with North Korea, we'll do it on our own anyway. So he's sort of talking tough, but, uh, but, you know, we'll see how, uh, how, how, you know, how much he's willing to back that up. So uh, here's another question that came from, uh, uh, on Facebook. This was from Isaac Ostlin. He said, I have a friend who's convinced China is out to get us. And he keeps saying that China is publicly denouncing North Korea, but privately egging them on and giving them nuclear research help. And this, so that North Korea can attack us without the China without the Chinese being implicated. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's sounds, an interesting. Sounds a little uh, of a conspiracy theory, but well, the short answer is I'd say I think he's wrong. Good. Uh, I guess I would say uh, because it's actually not in China's interest for North Korea to bomb the United States. I talked earlier about stability. Right. That would be horrible for China because if North Korea bombed the United, if they North Korea sent a intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear tip in it to the United States right. West Coast, uh, A, that would provoke a massive retaliatory action by the United States. Right. North Korea would be quickly obliterated <laughs> uh, in an, by an alliance with uh, Japan and South Korea. And, uh, and that would most likely lead to either a unified Korean peninsula under U.S. control or U.S. influence, or China would have to come back and use its troops to prevent that by invading into North Korea and propping up the North, and we'd be back to the 1950s in the Korean War. All of that would be detrimental and disastrous for global trade. It would be disastrous for the U.S.-China relationship. It would be disastrous for the Chinese economy. It, it, you know, None of those scenarios that I've just outlined are a positive from a Chinese perspective. So are the Chinese helping the, the, the North Koreans and by the way, the Chinese would rather the North Koreans not be a not be a nuclear uh, country on their on their doorstep with an unpredictable leader. As much as they're quote unquote communist allies, actually the relationship has frayed between China and North Korea to a great extent in the last decade, especially since the uh, that the new leader Kim Jong Un has come uh, come into power and killed his uncle, assassinated his uncle, who was uh, one of the lead kind of allies of the Chinese. Uh, regime. And so he's actually sort of um, uh, the relationship has deteriorated, deteriorated as a function of some of the choices he's made. And, and they find him much less controllable or much, much less influential, uh, uh, being able to influence him. And, uh, and so the relationship with them is way more complicated. So 
For all of those reasons, <laughs> the answer is I think there's highly unlikely uh, that the Chinese are trying to support the North Korean nuclear program in order to facilitate an attack on the United States. It would be it would be shooting themselves in the foot, the leg, and probably the shoulder. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I could see how that's an oversimplification that the media can uh, can can propagate. Thanks for uh, setting things straight. Um, and, and you talked about you know us being afraid of uh, communism. Um, and so, true or false, China is a communist nation. True, uh, on the surface. The, the, it, it is definitely a communist government. The Communist Party dominates politics here. It's a monopoly political system, basically. Uh, and it's very – so within communism, uh, you know, there are different um, – uh, I guess different strains of communism and, and communist governments have evolved in different countries around the world. But the Chinese political model or communist model is very much a mirror image of the Leninist system in, from the former Soviet Union. So they okay. borrowed a lot of things early on from the Soviet Union, and that is very much in place still. The political system is definitely still very communist. Having said that, what's interesting about China uh, is that they took uh, – they took a different path, for example, than, than the Soviet Union in, in, in terms of their reforms. The Soviet Union sort of blew up intentionally or not. Their their political system sort of blew up, and they 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 did they kind of went from communism to democracy or you know at least you know democratically elective governments yeah. um, without really having the economic structures and institutions or legal institutions in place to support that. And so it was very messy early on. The Chinese sort of looked at that and said. No, thank you. Uh, we're not. We're not going to do what they've done, uh, and we're. But we will kind of liberalize and reform our economic structures because they saw that communist uh, command and control economies didn't work. You know, they, you just couldn't. Uh, you couldn't keep incentive structures aligned in the right way to to to, uh, uh, to keep an economy growing at the right pace. And so they started slowly but surely liberalizing the economy. Uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, and, and onwards, by you know, sort of allowing initially it was just very simple, like let's allow farmers to have a surplus. So instead of having to give everything they make to the commune and not having any really reward for no bonus or reward for you know high productivity, let's let them let's we'll say you have a quota to give and then let's whatever they make beyond that well, they can keep that that. that created a huge surge, for example, in agricultural productivity in the late 1970s, early 80s. So then they just started slowly but surely doing stuff like that. And so their economy, actually, when you come to China and you visit, it does not feel a communist at all, which is the the but part of my answer. Yes, it's communist, but dot, dot, dot. Like you get here and you're like, this is a super capitalist, very entrepreneurial society. Which is supposed to be the opposite of uh, communism. Exactly, exactly. So that's what's, but, but, you know, China is kind of this, it's, it's a little bit of a schizophrenic economy or, you know, or society because you have, you still have a chunk of the economy run by state-owned enterprises, SOEs, and the SOEs are still very communist, super bureaucratic, very inefficient, mostly not all of them, but most of them, and uh, and they're struggling with that section of the economy. But they also, 
at the same time have this incredibly vibrant private sector. And, you know, it depends really on what industry, like some are very dominant, uh, dominated by the state, some are dominated by the private sector. But there's an incredibly vibrant private sector that actually makes up the majority of the economy, both in terms of output as, and, and in particular in terms of labor. And uh, so, you know, all the manufacturing of toys and garments and, you know, iPhones and all that stuff, that's all private business. And it's very efficient and they operate on low margins. And it's like China's the most competitive economy I've seen in the world. You know, if you come up with a good idea, a year later, you'll have 56 competitors at least. Uh, you know, there's bike sharing is huge here now, and it literally is blown up in like four months. Uh, there's a couple of companies, one company that started it on a college campus, OFO, and uh, they started putting these bikes out and it got popular. And then this other company, Mobike, kind of copied the concept. And now there's, I think, literally 50 to 60 uh, of these bike companies, and it's been in the span of basically a year. And there's billions of dollars that are being invested in, by venture capitalists into this thing. So China is this amazingly entrepreneurial and, and vibrant kind of private sector mixed with this cr- incredibly stodgy and, uh, and kind of slow bureaucratic state sector. And they're trying to figure out the balance. Um, you know, I think they recognize that the market tends to drive efficiency and profitability and good kind of long-term sustainable economic growth. But they also, the government is worried about, and this is where the communism comes in, they're worried about control over society. And if they don't have control over the key levers of the economy, like the banking sector, uh, you know, energy, uh, insurance, et cetera, then they, you know, then they might lose control of uh, of society uh, if they don't have control over, over those key parts of the economy. So that's, that's where it's a bit of a mixed picture. Right. Um, and that's where, like, in from the American perspective, there's the, you know, individual rights that that we, as Americans, we we don't feel are acceptable. Um, and now I'm aware that even uh, producing your album, you got a little bit of uh, censorship uh, trying to produce it from China. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, we. Um, uh, so uh, so I, I I wanted to manufacture the the, the album, the discs themselves, and the and the. Uh, uh, the covers, etc., in China, and because it's just a lot cheaper. Uh, back to the back to the trade deficit for right. the U.S. with China, yeah. um, and uh, and as it turns out, my they were happy to to print the discs with the music on it, but the album artwork, which had the lyrics in it as well as photos, you know, images behind the lyrics that were relevant to the lyrics, which included some images of, of China's top leaders. As soon as the manufacturer saw those, he said, you know, there's no way I'm doing this project. And by the way, you know, the, the, so the censors have already seen this. They've said no. And I guarantee you, none, none of my competitors will do this project for you for that reason. So, wow. so it was like, you know, yeah, it was a pretty quick, uh, like, and very forceful. Like, and I said, look, we're not going to distribute this in China. We're not, you know, we're distributing this in the United States. It's all in English. He said, it doesn't matter. Censors uh, see everything and they, they say no way. So yeah, and so was, you ended up producing experience. it. In, yeah, in, ended up producing in the United States. Actually, oh, manufacturing and, and you know in the what? US, Trump so. is all for that. <laughs> I was I was about to say like hire America, hire America, buy America. I was <laughs> yeah. I was early. I was an early uh, early adopter of that. Wow, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Somewhat accidentally. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, one more question from uh, Facebook. Um, so so this is from Jimmy Sian. He he's a Cambodian American, and uh, he posted the link for an article that that said that recently, quote, the Cambodian government has abruptly told a United States Navy unit 
to leave the country while accepting $157 million package from China. So basically this article talks about China has done this to a lot of countries um, where they the U.S. has a dominating role and then China comes in and outbids them. So Jimmy's question was, what are your thoughts on China negotiating deals with these developing countries, Cambodia as an example, and drawing U.S. influence away? Uh, this is a huge issue. I, I think, you know, whereas before my reaction to the, the conspiracy theory was, was somewhat uh, dismissive, um, this, uh, not, not at all in this regard. This is a real issue for the United States. Um, and this is one of the reasons why when Clinton was Secretary of State the, under the Obama administration, they, they, made, they kind of enunciated this pivot to Asia policy, uh, and a lot would argue they didn't do enough. But, um, but whatever your position is on that, they recognized uh, the risk that as China grows in influence from an economic and trade perspective, and as, after Xi Jinping came uh, into power in 2012, he really shifted China's geopolitical strategy, which historically Deng Xiaoping's uh, a, a famous phrase of hide your talents and bide your time, okay. which basically meant we're not going to we're not going to try, you know, we're going to focus on domestic issues and on growing our economy. And we're not going to worry about global issues from the standpoint of getting involved like the U.S. does. We respect other countries sovereignty. We're not going to kind of make waves. And Xi Jinping has really changed the strategy, has done a complete 180, certainly within the Asia Pacific region where the Chinese have been building islands uh, in the South China Sea, where there are sovereignty uh, uh, debates uh, and claims by a bunch of the Southeast Asian countries, in, including China, around uh, around basically territorial rights in the South China Sea, which includes, uh, you know, energy claims, oil claim, offshore oil claims, as well as fishing rights. And these claims extend all the way over to the Philippines. So the Chinese have a pretty liberal view of of, of what their rights are. And so they've started building islands uh, off the coast of the Philippines. Um, and those, uh, you know, these are, and, and this is, by the way, this is not just the Chinese. So a lot like Vietnam and some other countries have been doing the same thing, yeah. but on a, like the scale is not even comparable. It's, it's, it's like sort of, uh, you know, your big toe versus your whole body. So the Chinese are building large islands that they, that they are putting, facilities on, uh, including airstrips, and basically they're militarizing these islands. Yeah. And they're doing that because they they want to push U.S., the U.S., mil first of all, they want to increase their influence in Asia. And I'll get to the question about about the the, the, uh, the finance packages that you referenced. Yeah. But they want to put, they want to influence their, 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 uh, their presence in Asia and their, in, uh, and their kind of uh, weight, so to speak, in Asian uh, affairs. And they want to push the U.S. out, both from an economic and trade, but also a geopolitical perspective, but they'd love to, to get U.S. influence out. And so, what did they do? They gave they gave Duterte, the the, the, the new president of the Philippines, right. um, uh, they gave him all sorts of financial packages. They, uh, you know, this is my purely my speculation, but probably some, you know, some offshore accounts for Mr. Duterte himself. Right. They filled those up. They uh, but they struck a bunch of deals, and he reversed the Philippines. Uh, um, uh, approach to China in their meddling in the South China Sea and basically has uh, accommodated their positions uh, and their influence in the in the South China Sea vis-a-vis -vis the Philippines so that's a, he's done he's done a 180 you mentioned the Cambodian example um, yeah. they're doing very much the same thing so China is they have a strategy to basically finance and help build infrastructure in all of these developing economies and connect China 
uh, with the rest of the world in a way that it hasn't been from an infrastructure and trade perspective. So they want to be more influential and, and, and control or at least have competitive control of uh, key trade routes um, and, uh, and shipping routes in lanes in Asia, which the U.S. Navy has basically controlled for the last uh, four or five decades. And, uh, and, and they want to make sure that they have access to, to oil from the, the Middle East and from Africa as they're a major oil importer now. Um, and so, in, you know, what they're trying to do is basically ensure themselves in a time of conflict with the U.S. or other Asian powers that they have access to the resources that they need. And they feel like they, in order to do that, they need to push the United States out of it. Look, okay, I'm so sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'd say is I'm sympathetic to the strategy. If I was in China's shoes, I would be doing the same thing. You have to respect the fact that, you know, they're looking out for their interests. That's what geopolitics is all about. Um, but, you know, for the U.S., it, it does mean increasing competition in the Asia-Pacific region for influence and control. Yeah, expanding the empire of China, I guess. So of any of these issues we've talked about, uh, would you like to wrap any of them? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so maybe one of the maybe one of the things to uh, the principles uh, or themes to leave with the audience is um, Xi Jinping's China dream. So he he has this. It sounds, of course, it sounds like a ripoff of the American dream. Uh, it, it kind of is, but he has the Zhongguomeng is this uh, is this concept of Zhongguo uh, is China. Zhongguo is China, and Meng is is dream. Okay. Uh, so the China dream he enunciated early on in his uh, new administration, 2012-2013. You know, I have a song on the album called "So Good." It's on the it's on the, the B sides. Oh, yeah, uh, I've heard it. Yep. Uh, the second second disc, yeah. And and this basically enunciates you know Xi Jinping's China dream. And I kind of I did some research on the on the details of the China dream, and I put it in there. And verse one and two is in, in the choruses associated are sort of explaining what that dream is and verse three is kind of the the uh, uh, you know a hypothetical response from the chinese citizen citizenry sort of saying yeah but like is that what i want you know and maybe it's not hitting you know what everybody wants but you know that so i'll just give you a few lines here because i think it gets to these geopolitical issues yeah. it says first verse one goes this is my china dream it is going to be hard in the middle of anti-corruption, hitting the fraud. As we clean our house up, we also go in abroad. My daughter went to Harvard, where she studied the board. We built some islands offshore. We know they seem a bit far, but so is our ideas, extending almost to Mars. It all makes sense if you see it from my perspective. Xi Jinping style, my dream is picture perfect, so smile. Sit back and relax, America, because it'll take me a while. This is my China dream, it is gonna be hard In the middle of anti-corruption, hitting the fraud As we clean our house up, we also going abroad My daughter went to Harvard where she studied the board We built some islands offshore, you know, they seem a bit far But so is our ideas, extending almost to Mars It all makes sense if you see it from my perspective Xi Jinping style, my dream is picture perfect, so smile Sit back and relax, Megwar Cause it'll take me a while, 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 while
And the, the uh, you know, so this kind of explains like, look, we're going to be going out. Don't overreact because we're going to do it slowly and, uh, you know, in a nuanced way. Um, I, I have a, a fondness in my heart for all the songs in the tr on the album, but uh, but that's one I think really describes what they're trying to accomplish right now. Yeah. So, um, and and listeners can check this out. It's uh, theredprintalbum.com. So so finally, what effect do you want this album to have on the listeners? So there's there's there was kind of two missions for the album. One was educational entertainment. You know, giving so hopefully that the listeners, whatever their, you know, familiarity with China or level of familiarity is with China, hopefully it gives the listeners a, a better sense for uh, for the issues that are out there, an understanding of the basic uh, fundamental challenges uh, that the Chinese leadership are facing, Chinese policymakers are facing, because there's a lot of complicated issues at home. Yeah. Um, uh, a sense for the challenges that that will bring to the world as well as the opportunities. Big Pimpin is a great example. Uh, you know, Big Pimpin is a song that talks about the Chinese going, going out with, with, uh, overseas investment. Oh, yeah, and Big Pimpin investing on in assets companies. overseas, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Big Pimpin with our Renmin Bs. We doing Big Pimpin. We spending cheese. Check them out now. Big Pimpin on assets overseas. We doing and so it's it's hopefully will educate folks and it will do it in a way where it's memorable right i mean songs are catchy and you know i parodied some some of the best rap songs of the last two or three decades and and so it just makes it a fun way to listen and to to hear over and over those themes and, and i think that's that's the best way to learn about china i guess all of that is to say i hope it educates i hope it encourages uh enthusiasm for learning about china and chinese studies you know i think that the bedrock of the u.s china relationship are relationships uh, at a person-to-person -person relationships cultural relationships and so, you know, the goal is to help more people understand China because I think the more we understand China, the more they understand us, the better that relationship is going to be and the better that is for the world. The second mission is really um, to kind of do that, uh, uh, kind of help the U.S.-China relationship and help the world through music. And so I've, I have two nonprofit organizations that I feature on the website uh, with links there to their, their donation pages. But basically, hopefully, folks will, you know, I'm giving this away for free. I'm hoping folks will... You know, if they see value in it and, uh, and they have some, some, some spare change that they'll send some, uh, donations to those organizations or get involved with those organizations. Uh, Ping Pong Productions is one and they do U.S. China relation, uh, building through cultural arts exchange. And the, uh, the Shropshire Music Foundation uses music to heal hearts and heal lives in, uh, in war torn areas of the world. So it's not a, it doesn't have a China attack, but it has kind of a music doing great stuff in tough tough places in the world great yeah my hope is folks will get excited about those about those causes well big daddy doe thanks for joining us on on uninformed sean it's been a pleasure and uh and a lot of fun thanks for the questions and uh, and the discussion we'll, we'll talk to you soon man the music on this podcast was of course provided by big daddy doe from his album the red print rhyme and reason in the riddle kingdom check it out at the red print album if you like learning about the world issues and politics in interesting ways, subscribe to our podcast channel. We do stuff like this all the time. Our intro theme music is provided by Dee Dee Dumbo. 
I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un Uninformed. Thanks, everybody. Now, 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 I know we said things, we promised things that we haven't done, but y'all gotta admit, we've been slightly under the gun. Oh, eight, it was a great year to fill us with fear. Olympic champions one month, the next Olympians in tears. And with those tears came chaos, the whole system went down. Smiles faded to frowns, the stimulus came to town. Yet a four tree and quiet gave us all a nice high. When we don't know what to do, we just boost up AI. You see, we got a limited demographic window. By 2015, we'll have a rise in dependency ratio. So before the growth of our savings, Full stops so slow. We gotta build up all the airports, bridges, and railroads. And between now and then, we got a political transition. 2012, power's ambition finally comes to fruition. But policy and emission is the likely rendition. Cause all the policy cooks will take a break from the kitchen. Switching back on when they're ready to tackle Don't the mission. Yeah. That's right. Let's rebalance if we wanna keep the peace. Jello, jello.